Margin Call is the podcast that gives you behind-the-scenes access to the ups and downs of working in the Forex CFD industry. We interview the people that keep the show on the road, giving you insight into what makes the industry tick. The series is guest-hosted by myself, Jordan Michaelides, and produced by the team at Neural Media. To learn more, visit gomarkets.com slash podcast. That's G-O-M-A-R-K-E-T-S dot com slash podcast. Or take a look at the Go Market suite of products at gomarkets.com. Go Markets is a derivatives broker and Jordan Michaelides is the managing director of Neural Media. All opinions expressed by Jordan and podcast guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Go Markets, an AFSL license holder. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for financial decisions nor as an indication of future performance. Clients of Go Markets may hold positions in the derivatives mentioned. A financial services guide and product disclosure statement for our products are available at gomarkets.com. My guest this week is Callum Pickering, APAC economist at Indeed AU, and has worked at organizations such as the RBA and Business Spectator. Cal, you got some news coming out this morning, 11.30, I think. <laughs> uh, that's right. Um, we're going to do this quick because I've got some retail trade data okay. that comes out at 11.30 that's going to be somewhat interesting, I think. Yeah. As we sort of see how the impact of COVID-19 continues to evolve across the retail sector. I feel like retail trade, at least during a recession, is sort of like a lead indicator um, for what's going on. Like we got the, um, I saw you publishing the data for unemployment yesterday, but that unemployment data doesn't even seem realistic because it's only up till May. So I wonder if you find that retail trade is often sort of the thing that gives you a, a key glimpse into what's actually happening. Well, it, it can do, particularly this release, because what the ABS has done is they've introduced these preliminary measures of retail trade. So it's actually coming out several weeks earlier than it used to. Right. And so it's providing a more up-to-date idea of what's happening in the Australian yeah. economy. One of the big challenges we had early in the crisis was that all of our economic data is not designed for a pandemic. It's not designed for something that's moving so quickly and changing so rapidly. And what we found was that for the first couple of months, we really had no idea what the impact on the labour market was or the impact on retail or really any sector of the economy outside of what was happening in financial markets. Right. And so the ABS took a number of steps to improve the quality of their data and the timeliness of their data. Mm. And then one of those releases is, is out today. That's interesting because that's a big undertaking or at least a, a radical shift in the way that they would accrue that data. So, I mean, I used to work at an organization called Ibis World uh, years ago, and they use a lot of ABS data. <clears throat> and we gen- we're generally familiar with um, how they go and acquire the data for different data sets. So you're saying in a way that they've basically made the updates a lot more rapid in comparison to what it was previously. Well, it's certainly more rapid in terms of what's happening with retail trade. Um, What we've seen in the past couple of months is that the preliminary results are pretty good. The revisions that take place when the official data comes out, you know, barely change from the preliminary results. And so I do wonder whether there's maybe scope for the ABS to release more timely data um, going forward, even once we 
sort of emerge from the immediate crisis. Mm -hmm. But with regards to labour market data, what they actually did was they introduced a new measure entirely. Um, so they introduced a business payrolls measure, which came from the ATO, and that was capturing changes in, in business payrolls that were occurring on a weekly basis. So we could track the impact of COVID-19 with a, a very, a, with a much reduced um, lag compared with the labour force survey. Yeah, there's so there must be so much data, available data that's available with the ATO. I just know running a small business myself, the amount of information that you have to keep up to date with the ATO for fear of being audited, it's a very good uh, carrot and stick, I think, um, for a potential data resource. Uh, I, I've, I'm curious around your career. I mean, you've got quite the extensive industry acumen. I mean, Melbourne High. Commerce undergrad, international relations at Monash, four years at the RBA, two years of business spectator. Prior to Indeed, you've obviously held roles at a lot of top tier organizations. And I was curious, what seems sort of the obvious highlight and low light of migrating from somewhere like the RBA versus Indeed, which are very separate types of companies? Yeah, it's certainly been, it's been an interesting path that I've, I've gone through um, from doing purely the economic research side of things at the Reserve Bank of Australia for close to five years, which was a real career goal for me. I mean, going through university, that was all I wanted to do. I wanted to get to the Reserve Bank and the decisions that I made in terms of um, the courses that I did, the classes were all based around getting there. Um, and what I found was that for a number of years, I loved my time at the Reserve Bank doing, you know, research into the household sector, house prices, um, the US economy for a good 18 months there. I basically just got to play around with all the US data, right. uh, which was incredible. There was so much of it. And then I got to year five and I found that I needed more. I wasn't quite as motivated as I was earlier in my career. Um, I didn't know where my career was heading. Um, one of the things that emerged throughout my time at the Reserve Bank was that very few people were leaving the Reserve Bank because the overall job market wasn't particularly strong. And so there wasn't that upward momentum that you would normally expect in an organisation because managers were just staying there forever. Yeah. It's one of those organizations where you, you'd kind of expect that, right? Yes, but it was particularly bad during my period because I started just before the global financial crisis. Right. And so the job market being what it was, there just wasn't those opportunities out there for um, Reserve Bank economists to shift to the banking sector and things like that because those sectors of the economy weren't necessarily as, as strong as they had been before the GFC. So with almost five years under my belt, I sort of looked at it and I said, okay, well, I don't want to be sitting in the same job for, you know, seven, eight, nine years. I need to change up my career in order to, to move forward. Mm. And so that's what I did by uh, moving to the Business Spectator, taking on a role as an um, economic commentator, being given a, a huge platform where I could basically talk about any issue that I felt was interesting around the economy. Um, and that was a tremendous couple of years. But as with so many journalists, I eventually found myself redundant. There's <laughs> um, <laughs> a good story around that, actually. Um, really? Well, 
I got married in uh, October of uh, 2015 and I went away to Europe for a month. And the day I got back, I got called into a meeting with a, um, a news corp boss that I'd never met. And he told me I was redundant. So, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so I finished up on that day and, um, and moved on. That's super interesting because yeah, business spectator was owned by news corp. And I remember having news corp as a, as a client during that period and uh, the whispers around redundancies and how it could affect our contract. So that is so funny how, how you don't, you, you just don't realize and don't see that um, from my perspective, but for so many people at News Corp, there would have been a lot that lost their jobs at the time. Um, well, absolutely. The, um, the business spectator was slowly absorbed into the Australian. Mm-hmm. And as an economic commentator, News Corp already had several. You had Adam Crichton, you had Terry McGran, you had, I think Jess Irvine was, still there at the time. So there really wasn't a need for another one, which is why my job was quickly made redundant. Um, but I, I certainly wasn't alone. Many of our team sort of left around that time or within, you know, a six month period. Uh, you mentioned before that at a very early age, at least in uni, you knew that you wanted to work at the RBA. When did that idea pop into your head? Well, that light bulb go off. Yeah, it's interesting. It actually happened at a career day. Um, so I'd just completed my first semester at university and I'd done a principles of microeconomics class. That was the first time I'd done any economics and I was terrible at it. Mm-hmm. Just genuinely awful. I barely passed the course. And at that point, I would have never have considered economics as a career. But I went to a, a career day, Monash University, and I got talking to someone who was talking about the Reserve Bank and all the interesting research that was done and how important they were in society and the overall economy. And it's, I guess it lit a spark in me and, you know, it became something that I was really interested in doing. And so the next semester I did a principles of macroeconomics class, um, did much, much better. And it all sort of just snowballed from there. Um, And economics was the the focus for the rest of my university uh, career. Wow. There you go. It's interesting how you get into uni and oftentimes you have a broad base idea on what you want to do. And then there's one of those moments where you're just absolutely set on, on what you want to do. And it pivots the way that you're studying as well. I've noticed that a lot of guests have that. It's funny because like when you're in, yeah, for any high school students that are listening, you're often, you know, deliberating over your decision as to what you'll actually study. And then you get in there and you realize that it's wholly different. I just, I know I had that myself at uni as well. Well, yeah, I think a lot of people do because you enter university and often you have no idea what you want to do. Mm. And I think, you know, career guidance in, in high school has never been terribly <laughs> good. Um, you have some vague idea about what you might be good at, but in terms of what that means for a career and career progression, you really have no idea. And university is a place where often you, you find that. Yeah. Um, hopefully pretty quickly because it's obviously pretty costly in terms of the eventual next debt. Um, and I guess I was lucky that um, what I wanted to do was, was part of the, the commerce degree that I was involved in at the time. But I certainly have lots of friends who sort of made the transition from arts to law or from commerce to some other area um, throughout university because they might have done an elective that, that really appealed to them and became what they wanted to do for the rest of their career. Well, so you're at, uh, the Indeed Hiring Lab now. Um, 
primarily focus on analysis research on Australia and New Zealand. I, I would say you're probably the reason why I reach out is probably you're one of my favorite economists on the sort of Oz biz subcategory on Twitter. And I'd say mainly it's because you've got quite, um, I would say an agnostic viewpoint. You don't show too much bias or as Twitter is Twitter and you get a lot of people who are, who are very biased. Um, why do you think your personality leads to a strong suit as an analyst or economist? Gee, that's, that's a really good question. I know when I, when I started on Twitter was back when I began at the Business Spectator. And as a, a journalist, I was expected to be on, on Twitter. Before that, I'd never really considered Twitter as something that would be interesting to me, um, particularly as an introvert. I didn't really have a, a great desire to, to put myself out there and be <laughs> widely criticised. But what I found was that I was doing a lot of things that weren't necessarily done much back in those days. So a lot of the, the graphs that I was putting up, um, most economists weren't putting up, you know, graphs back then. Mm-hmm. Today, it's, it's far more widespread. But back then, you know, I felt like I was doing something that was a little bit different. And I felt like that managed to sort of increase my profile and get people interested in what I was talking about. Because a lot of people are quite visual and being able to see what's happening is a lot easier than just reading that, the unemployment rate increased to 5% or, or something like that. Um, I think, you know, you, you build that reputation, you begin to talk to the right sort of people and that in turn helps to, to build your reputation, how people view you. So once you start talking with, you know, some of the best economists and some of the best finance people, um, you know, you have contacts with journalists and, and things like that, I think it all begins to, to snowball from there. And that's certainly what I've found um, across my career as to you know what personally people see in in me from a a twitter side you know i'm not not sure you know i I don't consider myself to be an expert in twitter i just find that i've been successful at twitter yeah um as an analyst though do you find that um like because as an example i i run this media business i've always been in finance right and i've always been in marketing and sales related roles but over time, I've moved into sort of running an agency slash media organization in that sphere. And I think I've led down that path because I'm somewhat of an extroverted individual, but I'm also creative and I, I therefore like discovery and conversation. So I feel like that has lent me towards going down this path, even though, you know, over the years, my dad classic Greek immigrant. He's like, Oh, you got to be an accountant. You got to be a lawyer. You got to be at this or that some sort of profession, um, in the, in the space. So do you find that there's like something like a very conscientiousness about your personality that lends towards being a, a decent analyst or economist? Well, I think early on working at the reserve bank, there was a great emphasis on being correct. Um, an almost pedanticness about it um, in terms of fact-checking everything and making sure you never make mistakes. And I think that has been something that's really stuck with me even once I've left the Reserve Bank. Mm. And, you know, I, I try my best to say things that I believe to be true. Mm-hmm. Um, and I certainly try to avoid saying things that could be viewed as, as being biased yeah. or political. I mean, sometimes I've failed at that. There have been times where I've blasted politicians on Twitter for saying silly stuff. Um, 
but I certainly try my best to, you know, avoid that where possible or at least be constructive mm. in the criticisms that I make. Well, I said before that um, you're probably one of the most agnostic and rational economists on Twitter. Like, uh, you may feel that expressing an opinion on a politician is uh, crazy, but, um, you know, you, you see a lot of economists, the, this, everything, every sentence they say has a political slant to it. You can generally get an idea as to who they support. So, I guess for you, what um, when it comes to this analysis and this process that you have, let's say with this this data that will come out at eleven thirty, what are your overarching principles for how you review that data and then look to report it both at Indeed and then later on in the public sphere? So at least initially there will be sort of the, the data dump. You know, what are the, the major indices saying? You know, how can I graph that? And, and what would be interesting to the audience that I'm addressing on, on say, social media? Um, so there'll be those initial, you know, there might be three or five graphs that I, I put out pretty quickly about what's happened, what's the major points, what is interesting to people. Um, t- sometimes there'll be certain wrinkles in the data that need to be emphasised. That's been a particular issue recently with um, unemployment data. There are things that people need to know that won't necessarily be obvious to a non-expert. And so you try to provide that insight that allows them to understand the data. Right. Um, I've been speaking to a lot of journalists recently about the unemployment data, and that's been something that I've been emphasising a lot because if you're not an expert at this, it's really easy to view it in the, in the wrong way. Mm. You need to be quite conscientious about providing that insight that allows them to understand precisely what's happening. Yeah. And when you say the, uh, you know, non-experts will often skip over, is that um, merely the fact that like you see it on the news all the time, you always get these headline numbers, the 7.1%, but probably what is more interesting is the underemployment numbers. Is that what you're referencing in particular and what that means for the economy? Um, It certainly can be. Yeah. what I'm referencing. So it could be the situation where the unemployment rate is at 7.1%. But right now we know that a lot of people who have lost their jobs have actually left the labour market. Okay. And that's distorting the numbers. So for example, yesterday when I sent out a um, press release around the labour force figures, I noted that the unemployment rate was 7.1%. But I said, if you include all the people who have recently lost their jobs as being unemployed, then the unemployment rate is actually 11.3%. And that's probably closer to reality than that 7.1%. Yeah, that's an interesting thing about the labour market, isn't it? Maybe you can explain that for the audience because I reckon while there's a, a bunch of professional traders that listen to this, there will be people who are novices as well and don't fully understand that component. How do, how do we define how someone leaves the labour market or when they've left the labour market? Yeah, so the definition of unemployment is quite specific in Australia. And to be considered unemployed, you need to be actively searching for work, Mm -hmm. which normally isn't a problem because in order to receive unemployment benefits, you need to be actively searching for work. And so the two concepts are pretty closely aligned most of the time. But that has really fallen apart during the COVID-19 crisis because... One, there are very few jobs that you can actually search for. And so most people just aren't going to be bothered with trying to find a new, new job during the crisis. 
but also because the federal government relaxed mutual obligations, which is a process which requires people to search for work if they want to get unemployment benefits. Mm -hmm. So right now you can be receiving the uh, job, job seeker subsidy, but not be considered unemployed, which right. is completely odd to a non-economist, but makes perfect sense for me given the definition of unemployment that we have. So it's created a huge divergence between the actual level of unemployment across Australia, people who would love to have a job and get back into work and the official measure of unemployment. Mm -hmm. And just to, um, I guess, provide some context about that, uh, 835,000 people have lost their jobs mm. in the past two months, but unemployment in Australia has only increased by 211,000 people. So about 600,000 people have lost their jobs but have now left the labour force, which is completely odd to think about, but that's how the labour force statistics work. Why, why is that? Why, why do you think it doesn't give that sort of whole picture? Well, I mean, normally it, it does a pretty good job because there is that alignment between unemployment and people receiving unemployment benefits. Yeah. Right now that relationship is just completely broken down. Yeah. Um, part of the definition that we do use in Australia is an international definition of unemployment, which is just basically that to be considered unemployed, you have to actively be searching for a job and you have to be ready to begin in a job. And of course, normal situation, that's fine. Normal labour market, that's fine. Right now, we don't have a normal labour market. Yeah. You know, when there's no jobs for people to go into, they're not going to be searching for jobs. And if they're not searching for jobs, they're not considered unemployed. It's a completely weird situation. Um, and it, it's playing havoc with the labor market statistics that we have. Wow. Okay. That, that is very interesting. And I think people really need to, um, to take heed of that. I, I guess from your perspective, you know, this is all down to coronavirus. We all know we've all spoken about it for you know, the last few months. It's so weird. I was speaking to Martin North like uh, the other week and we were just chatting how like, do you remember like the, uh, the Royal Commission? You know, like the Royal Commission was like just late last year. I, I just think about the last year in October, I, I experienced a typhoon in Japan and we had the bushfires. Then we had World War Three in January <laughs> with that, that whole Iran shenanigans. So it's, it's just all this in, in hindsight uh, seems unreal. Like what a year we've had. Honestly, it feels like the bushfires happened about a decade ago. I know. It feels like it happened a <laughs> long time ago. It's so weird. Um, I'm curious as to when you got that initial insight as to when coronavirus was becoming a serious thing. I know from, from our perspective, being in the finance space, everyone was hearing about it sort of early jam. But for me, it was probably mid-Feb or early Feb when there was a run on toilet paper in Tokyo and Hong Kong. And I first started to think like, okay, wow, this is like as what people were doing during the typhoon in October. Um, and then I think for a lot of people in Australia, it came home to roost that Friday, the 13th. It was in March and the Grand Prix, Grand Prix was cancelled. Fashion Week was cancelled. Uh, the NBA had been cancelled the week before. Uh, when did you really start to think, okay, this is, this is really serious? 
Yeah, there were several stages of that. Um, I remember being concerned about what was happening in China purely from an economic perspective with regards to what it meant for the Australian economy through the export and, and tourism channels yeah. and wondering whether that would be sufficient to push Australia into a recession. Um, and I really wasn't sure about whether it would be or not. And I remember it was, might have been around the 25th of February, I was doing a presentation up in Sydney talking about the labour market and the outlook for the labour market. And even at that point, I wasn't entirely sure whether Australia would have a recession. Mm. I was sort of sitting on the fence around that. And of course, within about a week's time, it was clear that something very different was happening. And by about the 10th of March, I think it was, was when I pulled my two-year-old daughter out of childcare, wow. um, told my wife that she was working from home going forward. Um, and then within a few days, it sort of became an economy-wide thing. So certainly from an economic standpoint with regards to Australia, I was concerned pretty early on just because it was China and it was our biggest trading partner. Um, but I think like a lot of people, I was caught a little bit unaware about just how quickly it came upon us yeah. and how fast we had to react in order to um, contain the spread because the Australian economy just changed beyond all recognition within about a, a one or a two week time. Yeah. It was amazing how like the two or three weeks prior, the way that um, the prime minister's office was talking around how they were treating this thing. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's so fascinating because I remember in late Jan, early Feb, my partner and I had said, look, let's buy some things like tin food, pasta and that enough that would allow us to eat for about a week. So it wasn't crazy. Like you, you're not seeing people going in with uh, trolleys with stuff. that's you know, a few extra tins of tuna and stuff like that. And that was mainly because of our experience in uh, the typhoon in Tokyo. I've never experienced anything like that where we walked around for like four or five hours and couldn't find any food and we had to be locked down for 48 hours and we just basically survived off 7-Eleven food. Mm. So we, we managed to find a few things in the supermarket, but I've never seen anything like it. People were just like blown away back home. So we were well, we were pretty well prepared, but I think it was that, that Friday and then that Sunday when I do my usual shopping, I went to Coles in Richmond and, uh, uh, I just, the look on people's faces, I've n I'll never forget it. Like, I feel like that's one of those things you tell your kids, just the look on people's faces when they get into coals and it's more packed than usual on a Sunday night, but there's no food. It's all mm. gone. Now all the fresh food is gone. And, um, yeah, I couldn't get over it. I was just like, wow, this thing is the panic contagion has really set in. Yeah. It's really amazing how quickly society changed. I know. We went from a normal situation where people were behaving normally and then within a matter of days, people were fighting over toilet paper and <laughs> fresh food and, and vegetables and all of those sort of things. It's, it's amazing just how quickly a, a normal, well-functioning society can just completely break down. Yeah. Look, speaking to Mark, Martin North last week, we were thinking heavily about this moment, not just uh, as a bad thing, but potentially as an opportunity, particularly for a lot of the people that listen who are... I would say opportunistic and, you know, if you think about the audience, they're mainly millennials, Gen X. Um, they don't have as many real assets as say the boomer generation with housing. And so they're more intrigued as to how to increase their real income or general income. And so they're thinking about this moment 
now is like, okay, could this be something that sets me up for the next 10 years? And I guess I'm curious for, from your perspective, how are you thinking about moments of opportunity over the next six to 18 months in the economy? Yeah, I think, I mean, from an economic standpoint, I think it's going to be a very rough 12 to 18 months for the Australian and global economies. But as we know, there is that, there's a bit of a disconnect between financial markets and the economy more broadly. I mean, if you told me a couple of months ago or three months ago when all this was kicking off that um, most share indexes across the world would be near all-time highs, I would have told you that that was just nonsense. Um, But, you know, here we are. There can certainly be some, you know, good opportunities that do emerge throughout this. Um, And I think if investors are thinking long-term, then there's definitely money to be made. The concern I have for, for many investors, particularly new investors, though, is are you willing to put up with the volatility that could occur? Yeah. Um, it's one thing being willing to invest, say, twenty or $30,000, but how are you going to feel if it drops by you know, a couple of grand in a, in a single day? Are you willing to, to put up with that volatility in order to get those future gains? Mm. Now, if you're investing and you intend on you know, holding those investments for the next five or ten years, then I would say, sure, go for it. Because I think consistently, if you look at um, things like the ASX 200 or any of the global indices over a a five or 10 year period, you're going to end up ahead Mm. and they're going to be reasonable investments. That's um, that's what I guess Martin and I were saying is that, so for me personally, I've looked at the last, what the market is doing and what is actually happening in the real economy. And so I've taken off a lot of the risk in the market and taken away those opportunities that were invested in back in 2015, 16. And now I'm sort of just thinking about this next six months as a wait and see period, because we, you know, too, in my opinion, too much of the data in the real market versus the way that leadership are talking lends itself to just complete uncertainty and is adding to that volatility. So, and I'm just unsure what will happen. I think the thing that Martin said is no one can really know. Well, there'll there'll be two big moments that will really define the next few years. And one of those will probably be September when we know what is happening with JobSeeker and JobKeeper. Because I know from, as a business owner myself, if JobKeeper is gone, then that is significant to me. But there are other businesses who can't really operate the way they were a year ago. Yeah. Do you see other key moments like that? Like, uh, is it reporting season just after end of financial year? Is it the job keeper, job seeker change in September? Is it uh, Christmas period shopping? Are there th- certain things that you have in your mind that will really dictate where the next few years uh, run? Well, certainly JobKeeper and JobSeeker are going to be incredibly important for Australia. Um, You know, the amount of policy support being provided right now is really without precedent. And if the federal government intends on removing that entirely at a single point in time, then that could very well push us into a a second recession. Mm -hmm. Um, There's that genuine concern that, you know, there'll be a lot of job losses, a lot of businesses going into bankruptcy and things of that nature. I mean, more broadly, I think when we're thinking about the, the global recovery, um, the 
November election in the US has to be incredibly important. Oh, yeah. I can't believe I forgot. Uh, <laughs> all eyes are obviously going to be on, on that. And even just what the polls are saying leading up to it in the months ahead of that election is going to be incredibly important to, um, you know, how the market sees the economy evolving over a number of years. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's obviously another one that, um, you know, myself and, and the rest of the world will be watching quite closely. Yeah. And, I mean, there's, there's less defined... Um, events as well. So, I mean, we're just looking at countries such as the US and the UK and, and Europe more broadly and, and seeing how they're managing to contain the spread of COVID-19 because yeah. the global recovery right now is incredibly uncertain. And while Australia might be in a pretty good position to to go forward, um, you know, the, the rest of the world isn't. Yeah. And, and we don't know what the timeline is going to be for a lot of these major economies in terms of when they can start operating as normal. Yeah, we've become quite an insular economy, and I don't think that's really been realised yet. Um, like tourism is 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 a was probably our fastest growing export, right? Either it was would have been either tourism or uh, education. Yeah, I mean they're, they're both right up there, and they are two sectors of the economy that are going to be fundamentally changed by what we're going through. Yeah. I mean, I can't even imagine when we'll be able to travel overseas or when we'll even want to travel overseas. I know. Um, at least not this year. Yeah, well, I've, I was uh, meant to be getting married in October. It's been moved to April now. And uh, we're even discussing like, okay, the honeymoon intentionally was going to be Europe, but how likely is that? Are we even going to be able to fly to Europe? All right, the Australian economy. We, uh, last week I spoke about obviously uh, that R word, recession. Um, you know, I was, I was saying to uh, Martin, there was that um, McKinsey report where everyone feels that they're fine, but the economy's screwed, which is very interesting. Household savings are up, but retail sentiment is down. Unemployment we spoke about is up. What are sort of going to be the key indicators that you are going to be looking at over the next 12 months that others should buy, should be looking at as well? So what I'm really interested right now is where the economy settles once the lockdowns are lifted. Okay. Um, so we've seen obviously, you know, big spikes in you know, unemployment, you know, sharp declines in retail spending, but where does the economy settle at once the lockdowns are lifted? That is when the economy can largely operate as normal. We know that the economy isn't going to return to pre-crisis levels, at least not immediately. Um, so some of the talks about a, a V-shaped recovery is, is probably not quite the right way to be thinking about it. But how much permanent or persistent damage has been done and where do we go from there? Mm. So, for example, I mean, I estimate that the unemployment rate's at about 11% right now, um, you know, if you play around with the numbers. But say it settles at 7% by the end of the year, okay? That would be a, a reasonable outcome and would indicate that, you know, we need a, a little bit more fiscal support um, going forward in order to get the economy back down to an unemployment rate of 5%. Um, but it's not a, like, it's a, it's a pretty achievable um, mm. goal to go to. Whereas if the economy settles at an unemployment rate of, say, 8 or 9%, once the dust settles, then that's going to be a, a much harder challenge um, for policymakers. Well, it, so it's, it's really about me seeing what the data looks like mm. when the data is what we understand. You know, right now everything's affected by COVID-19. 
Mm. But within a month or two, we're going to start to see data that looks more like normal data. We're going to see a more normal unemployment rate, more normal retail trade spending patterns or consumer sentiment and, and all the measures across the economy. So I really just want to see what the data looks like once that um, the dust settles and the economy opens up. One topic of interest that's come out in the last week is the government has floated the idea of investing in crazy infrastructure projects that have been talked about for decades. And, and this is things like a Melbourne to Brisbane uh, high-speed rail link. Um, we're talking about uh, new infrastructure projects related to energy, so it could be hydro-related dams and so forth. Where do you sit on massive infrastructure projects versus just fiscal stimulus, say checks to individuals impacting the economy? What is, what is better, do you think, both in a short-term and a long-term perspective? Well, it really depends on the goal that you're trying to achieve. Um, so if the economy needs near-term support, you know, payments to, to households and businesses work a lot better because it gets the money into the economy immediately and gets it moving around the economy very quickly. Whereas if you're looking at a situation where you know that the recovery is going to take place over a number of years, then it can definitely make sense to invest in more infrastructure projects. Mm. Now, I think one of the concerns we have at the moment is that some of these big projects that have been proposed, you know, the cost-benefit analysis of some of these projects probably isn't that great. Yeah. You know, there's a reason why we haven't done the high-speed rail from, from Melbourne to Brisbane before. It's mm. not necessarily because it's very expensive. It's because, it, well, maybe it doesn't um, quite meet the cost-benefit analysis that you're, you're looking for. Um, one, of the, one of the things we have seen over many decades is that, um, you know, federal and state governments tend to be poor at picking infrastructure projects. They tend to pick projects based on what's going to win them votes as opposed to what projects are going to uh, increase the economy or improve productivity. And so I, I do think going forward as we do think about, you know, big infrastructure projects, and I do believe we need to invest more in our infrastructure across the board, um, that we do make sure that these projects, um, you know, have a, cost, a positive um, cost-benefit analysis, mm. that they're going to be projects that really boost the Australian economy, not just now, but for decades to come. The rail link one is, is always interesting because you're right. I don't think from a cost-benefit analysis, like it, it wouldn't make any sense. It's such a long distance and the cost for high-speed rail per kilometre is, I think on average, like a billion dollars or something like that, quite close to that. But I do know that in somewhere like Japan, when they because I've seen a doco on when they built uh, the Shinkansen, how it changed their economy. But also, we just don't have the population size to support it. Yeah, my concern would be, you know, how many people are going to use a high-speed rail? Um, can it really compete with um, planes? You know, I'm not entirely sure about that. And, you know, my understanding of the project is that it, it could very well take, you know, 30, 40, 50 years to yeah. sort of, make its money back, which is insane to think about because at some point over that, over that period, you're going to need to, you know, invest in, in maintenance and, you know, um, stopping the track from falling apart. So there's a good chance that you never end up ahead on a, on a project like that. Mm. You know, but one of the, the things you might mention about a project of that nature is that it could help to invigorate some regional areas of the economy. It could. 
well, which that, could be potentially beneficial, you know, beyond the traditional cost-benefit analysis you might do on a project of that nature. High-speed regional rail makes way more sense. I think um, a lot of VCs here locally have been speaking about this. Um, the fact that if you want to start a company, you've got to be in the center of the CBD. Wouldn't life be easier if you could just get a 30, 40 minute train from Ballarat to Melbourne, as opposed to the the current experience, which is about an hour and 45 minutes one way, even Geelong, Geelong should be a 10 to 20 minute high speed train stop. It, it's bizarre to me how long that stuff takes. And I feel like, it would actually be better for property prices as well in general. Well, I, I was going to say there'd be a lot of millennials that would be happy to live in Ballarat if it meant that they yeah. could own a house and get to the city in 40 minutes. Yeah, well, I had friends who did that. They, they went and got a job at Mars. They bought a house in Ballarat six years ago, did really well from that actually. And they lived a nice life. Like Ballarat, you know, the country really, it's a nice lifestyle. Fresh air, all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. It's actually interesting that you bring up, you know, property prices and living in regional areas. Um, you know, one of the things we've seen with the economy um, due to the impact of COVID-19 has been more interest in remote work, mm. which, um, you know, we're seeing that on our website all the time, people searching for remote work and, and, and uh, phrases of that, that nature. And it's really going to be quite interesting going forward, whether that's something that sticks, you know, businesses yeah. embrace remote work to a greater degree now that, it's proven that you know many jobs can be done that way. I, mean, I think I think so. Like in the last two weeks, we went and looked at because um, we're based in East Melbourne with our studio here, and we've been meaning to move to the city. Uh, you know, one suburb away for quite some time. We're probably twenty-five square meters here. And we might pay a thousand dollars a month. It's very cheap, very affordable. Mm. <laughs> we went to look at property in the city two weeks ago and you're looking at 30 square meters for five grand a month. I don't think commercial real estate agents and landlords have really caught up with what is happening during COVID. And I feel like things at least in that sense are going to change massively. Yeah, absolutely. Um, both in terms of, you know, some businesses operating purely remote and many other businesses drastically reducing the space that they need because they're going to have a larger share of their workforce yeah. uh, working remotely from day to day. I think it's going to be really interesting over the next few years, how that evolves and sort of whether the impact of COVID-19 has a more persistent impact upon the way we work. Yeah. Well, literally my co-founder said to me, why would we move when we can just hire another staff member remotely and all of our staff uh, are quite comfortable working at home. It's nice to work at home. You know, don't get me wrong. You want to see people and not feel like you're going nuts sometimes. Even uh, her as an introvert, she finds that, um, you know, this whole lockdown period has made her a bit uh, loopy. But, uh, yeah, just commercial real estate to me doesn't make a lot of sense at the moment. Um, I want to get to, I'm realizing I'm running out of time. So I want to quickly touch on supply chains before we finish off with some rapid fire questions. We all know about, situation with China. Um, I could bring up many different points, but it seems at least policy-wise, the government's saying, well, maybe we should stop relying on China less. And I know that pre-COVID, probably it was January, there was a big meeting amongst all the miners and a few other large-scale businesses, and it was with the Vietnamese government. 
And so everyone's talking about diversifying supply chain. Uh, some people argue it's all going to come back here. We're all going to make stuff locally. Um, speak to anyone about the landed shipping price and they'll, they'll say that's why we should be doing it because it's so bloody expensive to ship things to and from the country. If you were treasurer for six months um, and all of a sudden you had to create policy that changed the way that supply chains were done in Australia, what would you do? What policies or incentives would you come up with? Would you incentivize people just moving to another cheap labor uh, country like Vietnam or would you do something else entirely? That is a, that is a great question. Um, you certainly put me on the spot with it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm look, to be honest, I'm not a hundred percent sure. I mean, there, there is a reason why so much of Australian businesses is run through China because it makes economic sense. <laughs> you know, we didn't end up in this situation by accident. It's market forces which have pushed it this way. I almost wonder whether it would be market forces that actually force us to move away from that. Um, and that is, is purely because businesses will look at what's happened and they'll look at their reliance on China and say, okay, well, maybe in terms of the, the long-term sustainability of our business, we need to look at doing things a little bit differently. Yeah. Um, so I'm not necessarily sure the, the impetus will come from the federal government, it may very well just come from the business community. Yeah. So we need to put in place policies and processes that protect us from things of this nature. Um, yeah. That our business is highly reliant on China and, and maybe it makes sense to just dial that back a little bit and have other options available when things happen. Yeah, I, I think this period has given people an understanding of what the, the actual number is when it comes to opportunity cost of having that supply chain wholly based in one country like China versus many, you know, like maybe over the short term, it may cost you more to have more things done here locally, but for a moment like this, that happens very rarely um, that could potentially bankrupt your business. At least you're proofed in that regard. That's yeah, what I'm thinking. You want to have, you want to have those options available. Yeah. To those relationships that you've built up over a number of years that you can rely on when there are disruptions to, you know, your normal um, supply chain processes. And I think businesses will likely take that more seriously going forward. I mean, China's been absolutely wonderful for the Australian economy. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. Um, and it will continue to be wonderful for the Australian economy for, for many decades to come. But relying solely on a single country to drive prosperity as Australia has over the past couple of decades can have some downsides when you see an event of this nature yeah. um, that has really compromised the, the Chinese economy and supply chains um, going through China. All right. Uh, we're just about to hit 11. So let's finish off with some rapid fire questions. Uh, docos, movies that you've been watching at all during this lockdown period? Um, so a big one for me was because there was no sport on and I really yeah. missed that. I got into The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary. Oh, yeah. on great documentary. Yeah, it was great. Um, you know, about 10 hours of content, which <laughs> managed to uh, distract me for a, a good few weeks there. Um, I'm a huge NBA fan, so that was okay. um, definitely the sort of content that I wanted to consume um, during the crisis. Um, other ones that I really got into, um, TV shows, Succession, and okay. um, Billions. Yeah. I don't know whether you're familiar with those ones. But I've, watched, I've watched Billions. Is Succession on Stan? 
Um, oof, I think it's Stan. Because I saw this recently and I was like, oh, I want to watch that show. And I just got the Stan subscription for The Great, which is about Catherine the Great. My wife and I have been watching that one at the moment, actually. It's so funny. Yeah. Very, very good show. Not completely historically accurate, but <laughs> close, close enough. Um, all right. Best purchase under $200 that's kept you entertained during this whole period. Oh, entertained. That's really difficult. I was actually thinking, because you, you asked this question in almost all your podcasts, so I knew it was coming up. And I was thinking about, you know, the purchases that I've made that have really helped me um, throughout the crisis. And actually, so my, my toddler makes a lot of mess. Okay. And she entertains me a great deal. But the, uh, the best purchase we've made in the last couple of months has been a portable vacuum cleaner. Uh, because um, helped to keep the house looking uh, at least a little bit reasonable throughout this whole... Uh, this whole crisis. So my daughter entertains me, but the, uh, the vacuum cleaner is the, uh, the product that's really helped. We, um, it's not under $200, although the money came from selling things around the house on Facebook marketplace. And that was a Dyson stick vacuum cleaner. I've never had so much fun vacuuming in my life. It's just, <laughs> it's just the best. I'm I'm a neat freak, but this thing was amazing. We had an old hand me down vacuum cleaner from my fiance's parents for years. So we finally got a bit of suction with this thing. Cal, thanks for doing this, mate. It's been a pleasure having you on. I know you, um, you've got to run off and uh, check some data soon, but uh, where can people find you on the interwebs? So on Twitter, you can find me at, um, at Callum Pickering. Just make sure you spell my first name right because it's yep. not quite how you'd expect. Yep. Um, also, there is the, the Hiring Lab website, hiringlab.com. Org, which is all the research from uh, me and my economic team. So check that one out as well. Beautiful. All right, um, Callum Pickering, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Margin Call. Before you run off, make sure you subscribe on your podcast app to get first access to new episodes and consider sharing this with a friend who loves the Forex CFD game. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube by searching Go Markets. That's G O M A R K E T S. Until next time, thanks for listening.